Welcome to Hillside Baptist Church Podcast. We are a church that is committed to preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it is our privilege to open God's word with you. It is our prayer that you receive the message from the man of God with an open heart. That through God's word, you are encouraged and equipped to face life's challenges. But most importantly, it is our prayer that you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior if you haven't already. If you'd like to connect with us, you can do so at hillsidebc.com, find us on Facebook, or send us an email at info at hillsidebc.com. We hope that you benefit from today's message and that you would share it with a friend. But let's now open our hearts and God's Word. It is a blessing to be back with you this evening. If you would, open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1 this evening. Philippians chapter 1. We're going to be reading verses 3 through 8. As you're turning there, I want to give you just a little bit of background into what we're going to be looking at this evening. And I'm going to do it from the context, not of Philippians, but from the context of the ministry in Canada. Orangeville. Orangeville is about 16 to 17 hours drive from here. If you're familiar with the United States um, too much, Indianapolis would be halfway. Or Chicago, depending upon which route you take, would be right at halfway to where we live. In Orangeville, there is a church there that's called Calvary Baptist Church. The church was started back in 2012. They had a pastor until 2014 when the pastor resigned and he came back to the United States to take care of his family, his mom and dad. They did not have a pastor from 2014 until we arrived there in March of last year. The end result was that the church had dwindled down to one family. They had two Sunday services, a Sunday morning service and a Sunday, night, or Sunday afternoon service. They had stopped their Wednesday service and they had stopped their Sunday school um, ministries simply because they could not bring enough people in to handle those services. The end result was that we are effectively planting a new church. We are taking a, a family that was there, and we, are, we have the privilege of being used by God to replant, to reestablish this work. As part of that process, when you go through a church plant stage, and, and, you, and really this is a good thing to do ministry-wise on a regular basis, but we had the opportunity to begin to really look at what we wanted the ministry to look like, not just now, but down the years. Why do we have a Sunday school? What is the purpose of that time? Is it just because it's what we've always done as independent Baptists, or is there more to it? Why do we have a Sunday morning service? Why do we have a Sunday afternoon service? Why do we have it at this time and not another time? Why do we have a Wednesday night service? And the answers that we have come up with really are ministry-specific. Different ministries will choose different reasons for their services and different ideas behind those services, different things that they want to focus on. But having this time of reflection is useful 
for any ministry, but especially for a church plant. You want to be able to tell people, this is why we're having this. And, and I can't go to the Word of God and say the Bible commands us to have a Wednesday night prayer meeting or a Wednesday night service, because it's not there. The Bible says that we should not forsake the assembly of ourselves together, and it says that the New Testament church met on Sundays, but outside of that, the general guidelines are left to us. Now, I say that to say this, okay, and I'm getting a little bit windy here, but I say that to say this. We chose, when we um, started our Wednesday night meeting, to focus on the topic of prayer. I firmly believe that prayer is the lifeblood of the Christian life and of the church. I will also state that I am not the prayer that I should be. And I have a lot to learn on the topic of prayer. So on our Wednesday night service, we began, and, and every single Wednesday night since we began our Wednesday night service for over a year, we have, I have preached on something that has to do with the idea of prayer. This evening, I would like to share with you a snippet of some of what God has been teaching me over the past year, year and a quarter that we have been in Canada, and I've been preaching on prayer. If you'd stand in honor of reading God's word, if you are able to, we're going to begin reading in verse 3 of Philippians chapter 1, and we will read down through Philippians chapter 1, verse 8. Philippians chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making request with joy, for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ, even as it is meet for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my bonds and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, ye all are partakers of my grace. For God is my record, how greatly I long after you all in the bowels of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you for the time that we have this evening, that we could come into your house and that we could open your word, that we could fellowship with your people, that we can gather together to lift you up, to magnify you, and to glorify you. Lord, as we open your word this evening, I ask God that you would give me the words to say that would be an encouragement to your people in their prayer lives, and that you would continue to teach me what it means to be a prayer warrior. Lord, we love you and we praise your name. Amen. You all may be seated. Before we really begin to dig into our text this morning, I want to give you a little bit of background of Jewish culture. Somewhat like the Muslims of today, ancient Jews had a set time of prayer. Devout Jews observed three times of prayer at the temple, at 9 a.m., at noon, and at 3 p.m. 
Remember in the book of Acts, when Peter and John saw the crippled man in Acts chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Now Peter and John went up together into the temple at the hour of prayer, being the ninth hour. The early Christians also observed these Jewish times of formal prayer. In the Old Testament, we, saw, we also see set times of prayer. Daniel, in Daniel chapter 6, verse 10, Now when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went into his house and his windows being open in his chamber toward Jerusalem. He kneeled upon his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he did aforetime. There was a set, there was not just a singular set time in Daniel's life. There was at least three times throughout the day that Daniel formally set aside, these are my hours of prayer. I could stop right there and we could concentrate just on that one thought. And I'm just going to mention it in passing. What are your hours of prayer. There is nothing in the, the Bible, there is no verse that tells us that you must pray at this time or that time or another time. But I do not see how you and I can have a dynamic, growing relationship with God without spending time in prayer. It, it, it's just not a possibility. It, it is just not conducive to spiritual growth and to spiritual maturity. So when are your times, plural, of prayer? Having a plan helps us to not allow the stresses of the day to interfere with our prayer life, and it shows the priority that the early church and even the Jewish people placed upon this idea of prayer. If there is one word that would categorize the prayer that we just read in Philippians chapter 1, it would be the word thankful. I want us to consider briefly just the first part of this prayer. I'm not going to be able to, in the time allowed, to cover the entire prayer this evening. So I want us to just consider this first part of this prayer and what you and I can learn from it and what God has been teaching me over the past few years past few months. Paul starts his prayer by expressing thankfulness for the Philippians. In verses 3 through 5, it says, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making request with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. Verses 3 through 6 are one sentence in the Greek, and they shine with, with glowing gratitude for the church and for the believers there at Philippi. As we consider this prayer of thanksgiving, I want you to notice a couple of things here. The, the main thought is right here in verse 3. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. It is the what? Paul thanks God every time the Philippians come to mind. His thankfulness comes through in this prayer in the occurrence of, of all, always, and every in verses 3 and 4. 
Evidently, there was, a very, there was a particular close personal relationship between him and the church there at Philippi. And that made him very thankful for those people and for the, for the believers there. And it made him joyful on account of them. There was much reason for Paul to be thankful for the Philippians. He had seen, a God, he had seen God do a great work in their lives as a result of their salvation. They were his children in the faith. He had, he had birthed them, to use that terminology. He had led many of them to the Lord. He had been blessed by their concern for him and his welfare. They had sent one of their own to the Apostle Paul to spend not just a short time, but, but a rather lengthy time with him. To minister to the Apostle Paul, to, to, to help and serve the Apostle Paul. So close was this church that they were, they were really functioning in many ways as a modern-day sending church should function for their missionaries. He had been blessed by their financial help. He had been blessed by their co-laboring together in the gospel. As Paul considered and thought about the Philippians, he was thankful for them. But the focus of his thanks was not directly to the Philippian people or to the believers there. You and I should be thankful to the people that assist us and minister to us, to the people that serve alongside of us. But the primary recipient of our thanksgiving should be God the Father. And Paul makes it clear that he is thanking God for the Philippian believers. It is easy for us to want to thank God when somebody does something nice to us. Thank you for the gift that you have given me. We'll touch on this here in just a few minutes. But ultimately, that person, although we should thank them, was just the pass-through. That gift came from God. Not as much from that person. That person just allowed themselves to be a conduit. And the Apostle Paul is saying, as great as this church at Philippi was, as great as these people were, as much of a blessing as they have been, they simply allowed themselves to be a conduit. To pass God's blessings on to me. Verse 4 is the how. Verse 3 makes the point that Paul thanks God for the Philippians. Verse 4 fleshes out how he gives thanks. And he gives thanks in prayer. F.B. Meyer points out that nothing would be better for most of us than a great revival in our habits of private prayer. I have mentioned it before in various messages. I don't know if I've said it here or not. But I, but I firmly believe that one of the reasons why we do not see the results of years gone by is because we have lost, and I speak we, myself included, because we have lost the ability to pray. We're satisfied with giving God a list of give me. We treat him as Santa Claus at Christmas. Give me this, give me that, give me health for this person, and give me grace for there. And we treat God as a bunch of, as just a give me God. And we've lost the ability to truly pray. There are two notable thoughts here. 
First, Paul does not take out a Facebook ad to express his thanksgiving. Instead, he directs it to our Heavenly Father. He wants them to know that the blessings that he has received from them come from God and God alone. They do not come from the church at Philippi. They do not come from Epaphroditus. They do not come from all of what the church there has done. They come from God. They have allowed God to work in them and through them. As a result, Paul was blessed and encouraged. Paul knew what James said in James 1.17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. And as he writes to the church at Philippi, he simply says, I thank God for you. Let me try and illustrate this. Many of us go out on Amazon and we order packages and sometimes we will go out on Amazon and we will order a package and have it sent to somebody else as a gift. We just recently did this. We, had, uh, we knew some people that were getting married and they had their, their wedding list on or their registry on Amazon and we went out to Amazon and, and the internet makes this so easy. We were able to type in their address, look at their registry, say, okay, we'll get them this, and have it sent directly from Amazon to them. When that gift came, who do you think? The delivery driver? Or the person who sent the gift? The person who paid for the package? The real thanks, we thank the delivery driver for their service to us in delivering the package, but the real thanks goes to the person that, that paid for that gift. Our Heavenly Father paid the price so that you and I can have our sins forgiven, so that we can have a proper outlook on life, so that we can have a proper view of life on this earth. He, he, he paid the price for us. The gift comes from Him. As a result our thanksgiving should be expressed to him. So as you consider your prayer life, as I consider my prayer life, how much time of your prayers are devoted to giving thanks to God? I'm not saying that praying for each other and praying for needs is not important, because it is. That is an important aspect of prayer. But as we study this prayer of the Apostle Paul's, we notice first that, that Paul makes a priority of giving thanks. Is giving thanks to God something that you just do in passing? Or is it a major part of your, of your relationship with him? Thanking him for what he has done, for what he has allowed others to do, what he's doing in your life and what he's doing in the lives of others. The second thing that we see here in the how is joy. It was with joy that the apostle Paul besought God on their behalf. Paul's hardships, and he had had a number of them, made him better, not bitter. Don Sisk wrote a book, and I still have not read it, but I love the title. The title is either Bitter or Better. When, when, when a problem comes into your life, you have two choices. You can either become bitter or you can allow God to, to work in your life and to make you better. The Apostle Paul had chosen to allow God to make him better. 
We must distinguish here between worldly joy and Christian joy. Worldly joy requires delightful circumstances, while Christian joy depends on deep-seated delight in Christ, not circumstances. Elizabeth Elliot said it well, the secret is Christ in me, not me in a different set of circumstances. You see, so much of our prayer life is wrapped up in asking God to change our circumstances. God, if you do this, if you change this circumstance in my life, if you, if you work in this and, and you make this situation better, then I will have joy, then I will be happy, then everything will be great. As a believer, our joy is not based upon our circumstances. Our joy is not based on somebody else's circumstances. Instead, our joy is based on our position in him. 1 John chapter 4, verse 13 says, Hereby know we that we dwell in him, and he in us, because he hath given us of his spirit. Upon our acceptance of the free gift of salvation, when you and I accepted Christ and we were born again, we were placed in Christ. We were placed in him. As a result, nothing can remove us from that placement. Once you are born again, you cannot, be, you cannot have that removed. Nothing will remove you out of his hand. Romans chapter 8, verse 35 through 39 says, what, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? The, an overriding focus of the Apostle Paul's prayers and his life is not focused on the horizontal of this life. It's not focused on the circumstances that he finds himself in. He doesn't come to the Philippian believers and say, I'm praying that God will change your circumstances. I'm praying that God will remove the persecution. I'm praying that God will do this or that for you. Instead, his focus is vertical. I'm praying that God will mature you. I'm praying that you will stay strong in your faith. I'm praying that you will um, complete the course and fight the good fight of faith. I'm praying that you will be found faithful until the end. These are some of the things that God has been dealing with me in my own personal prayer life over the past year or so as I've been looking and studying and, and growing in my prayer life. Again, let me ask the question, do we not treat God many times like a Santa Claus? God, here's my Christmas list. I'm bringing my Christmas list to you before you today. I want you to do this and this and this. And if you don't do this and this and this, then I'm going to call into question your faithfulness because this is how I believe you should do it. We don't find that in the Apostle Paul's prayer life. The joy that we have as believers is not to be found in our circumstances, however good or however bad it is, but rather it's found in our position in him. As a result of being placed in him, we have joy. Paul thanks the God for the Philippian people. He does it with joy. Verse 3 is the what. Verse 4 is the how. Verse 5 is the why. 
Paul reveals that the main reason he is so thankful for the, for the Philippians was their, was their partnership with him in the gospel. Paul says that I am thankful that we are co-laborers together, striving together for the furtherance of the gospel. Their fellowship. The word partnership there is often translated as fellowship, but it is much more than a meal together. It's much more than a warm feeling of friendship. It's much more than what we do on a Sunday or Wednesday night as we come into church or as we leave church. The term frequently has commercial overtones of a business partnership. It, re, it suggests a robust commitment that extends beyond mere emotions. One commentator writes, There may be overtones of warmth and intimacy, but the heart of the matter is the shared vision of what is of transcendent importance, a vision that calls forth our commitment. It is agreeing this is the most important thing and we are going to strive to accomplish this task. And we join together. And for the Apostle Paul and the church at Philippi, that task was the furtherance of the gospel. They were focused. Their relationship was focused around how can the gospel advance? Paul was grateful the Philippians shared not only in the blessings which the gospel gave, but also in the service which the gospel deserved. There are people in our lives that God has used to bring his blessings upon us. I can look back, I'll be, I'll be 50 years old in October. I can look back in my life and there have been notable times where I have been very blessed by God as he has brought somebody into my life at just the right time to meet a need in my life, to, to, to guide me spiritually and to direct me as we go forth. I'm thankful for those people. We should express our thankfulness to God for bringing those people to us. We see that Paul gave thanks for the Philippians. Let us also notice that Paul thanks God that God finishes what he started. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6 says, Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Growing up, my parents, when I was first entering school, my mom and dad had decided that they did not want to place us in the public school system. They made arrangements with a Christian school in Lowell, which was about 45 miles away from where we were living. And that school sent a bus down to where we lived, and we rode the bus back and forth. And every once, about once a month or so, we would go up to that area to do grocery shopping. The Aldi's was, the only Aldi's in our area was up there. And we were able to, mom would say we were able to save quite a bit of money just by driving that distance to go grocery shopping and get our groceries up there. It was cheaper. On our way up Interstate 65, there was a rest park right before the main exit that we would get off. And if you pulled over into that rest park, you could look behind the rest park and you could see an unfinished building. It was a mansion. There was a guy that was actually building a mansion there. 
The house, that, that mansion has since been demolished and the property has been turned into something else. You see, the guy ran out of money and the mansion just sat there partially unfinished. It never was completed. The Basilica of the Holy Family, also known as the Sagrada Familia, is currently the largest unfinished Roman Catholic church. It was designed by the Catalan architect Antoni Gaudi, and work began in 1882. At the time of his death in 1926, less than a quarter of the project was completed. Construction resumed to intermittent progress in the 1950s, and it was anticipated that the building would be completed by 2026, the centenary of the architect's death but it has been delayed due to the COVID-19 pandemic with no anticipated completion date. It just sits there as an unfinished building. You and I can think back in our own lives and we could probably think of things that we have started and not finished. I have a dream of building a bed frame for our bed, we, we, the bed frame that we have, we have it supported on two by fours. It's a metal frame and, and it's gotten bent up. It's, it's not in the best of, of shape. And I have a dream of, of building a bed frame. And, and I even went and, and found somebody was giving away four by four wood. And, and I even went and picked the wood up and, and I have the, the post cut to size and sanded. And they've been that way in my garage now for about six months. Incomplete. The posts are there. They're sanded. The, the two-by-sixes to, to finish out the bed frame and the two-by-fours and the plywood, it's all sitting there waiting for me to complete the project. You can think back in your own life of projects that you've started and not completed I am so very thankful that God completes what he started. He doesn't start something and then just leave it and, and say, well, I'm done. I, well, I'm busy over here. And, and well, I bit off more than I can chew. He completes what he starts. What is the good work that God began that the Apostle Paul says that he will complete? It is the entire work of salvation. John 1, 12 through 13 says, But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. You must remember that the term salvation is used in at least three different senses in the New Testament. The time in which you got saved, that is the time of your salvation. The term is also used to describe our, our Christian life and our process of becoming more Christ-like, our process of maturity. And then we look for the final salvation, the glorification. When Christ comes back, we shall receive our glorified bodies, our ultimate salvation. God will complete what he started. He's not going to leave you just dangling, saying, oh, I'm, you, you, you accepted me as your personal Lord and Savior. Now I'm just going to leave you, and, and I'm done. And I'm going to walk away. That's not what he does. Paul's, God, God's work 
will come to full completion at the day of Jesus Christ. His focus was on the day of Jesus Christ. It fills the Philippians with a a hope of glory. We do not have to be concerned about losing our salvation because God is faithful and he will complete what he has started. Our eternal destiny does not depend upon us. It does not depend upon our work. It does not depend upon our labor. It does not depend upon our love for God, but rather on his work, his labor, and his love. He finishes what he starts. The Apostle Paul says, you know, I give thanks to God for you. I give thanks to God for you because God finishes what he, sta- what he started. And I'm looking forward to what God is doing in your life and how you're growing and how you're maturing and how you're becoming more like him. As we continue to look at this prayer, let us note that thankfulness is also a fitting frame of mind. Verses 7 and 8 in Philippians 1. Even as it is meet for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my bonds and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, ye all are partakers of my grace. For God is my record, how greatly I long after you all in the bowels of Jesus Christ." A simple reading of this passage, of these verses, simply, it seems like Paul is simply stating that his feelings, that that what he is expressing is right or appropriate. But he says so much more here. It refers to a mindset, and this is the overriding, one of the unifying themes of the entire book of Philippians. Paul is saying, it is right for me to think about you in this manner. It is right for me to give thanks to God for you. It is right for me to, cons- to, to praise God that God will complete what he started. This, it is right for me to have a mindset of thanksgiving. The content of this mindset refers back to verses 3 and 3 through 6. Paul is thankful for their saving participation and partnership in the gospel. He's thankful that they are fellow participants. Um, fellow partakers in the labor. He's thankful for the work of defending and confirming the gospel. He's thankful for them. This idea of thankfulness is over and over and over in this passage. There is something about a thankful mindset that changes our attitudes, our priorities, and our focus in life. But we are not to be thankful just for what we might consider the blessings in life. Ephesians 5.20 says, Giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Thessalonians 5.18, In everything give thanks. He, He doesn't say give thanks when everything is going well. He doesn't say give thanks when there's money in the bank. He doesn't say give thanks when your health is good. He doesn't say give thanks when your family is 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 following Christ. We should give thanks for all of those things, but we should also give thanks when things are rough, when the finances aren't there, when, when the car is broke down, when, when, the fam, when family members seem to be um, drifting away from God. He says, give thanks. It's a mindset. It is totally at odds with everything that this world teaches us. It is a way of life. It is a 
picture or a characteristic of the transformed mind that the Apostle Paul talks about in Romans chapter 12. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. Occasionally, my kids get nasty attitudes. They're kids. Occasionally, they'll back talk. Occasionally, they'll fight with each other. I mean, they're, they're human. I, I did the same thing with my brothers when I was younger. I guess you could say I'm paying the price now. I know that this is a problem that's only in our house, that none of you ever have problems with your kids, that they're always perfect angels, uh, that, yeah, okay. When these times come, though, I often will go to my kids and ask them, give me five things that you are thankful for. And I make them sit down and write out five things that they're thankful for. And if they're fighting with a brother, um, okay, I want you to give me five things that you are thankful for about your brother. You see, when we are actively giving thanks, it is hard, if not impossible, to argue and fight. I've seen it in my own life. I've seen it in my kids' life. As they give thanks, our entire, their entire attitude, their entire mindset begins to change. And what was so important that they were arguing and fighting over no longer seems to be so important. Let me bring it back to God for just a minute. God is our Heavenly Father. Do we not sometimes want to argue with him. We try and convince ourselves that he does not know what is best for us and that we know better than God. God, I don't know why you allowed this into my life, whatever this may be, but you're wrong for doing this. I would have never done it this way, God. Can we be honest enough to say that we all have felt that way at some point in our life? You see, even when we're giving thanks, even for the difficulties, it becomes easier to trust that he is working out all of the details for his glory and for our benefit. This mindset is life transforming. This one attitude, this one way of life, possibly more than any other, is a testimony to the world of a transformed mind. When we respond with thanksgiving, even in the midst of trials, troubles, and tribulations, it shows a marked difference between the believer and the world around them. It is a testimony to the changing power of God, and it makes people want to ask what is different about you? How can you give thanks in the midst of that circumstance? Thanksgiving is an important, even critical part of the Christian life. And I believe that it is a cornerstone to the life of prayer. Beyond giving God the glory and praise to which he is rightfully due, one of the greatest things about thankfulness is that it is simply a choice that you and I can make. We can choose to be grateful. We can choose to give thanks. And the more we choose it, 
the easier it gets. Studies have shown that each day as we practice gratitude, the neural pathways in our brain strengthen and ultimately create a permanent, grateful, positive nature within ourselves. The more we profess our gratitude for our blessings, the more we notice things to be grateful for, the more it changes our entire outlook and demeanor on life. It changes how we live and others notice. It is contagious. You've heard the old saying, smile at somebody, it's contagious. Thankfulness is contagious. It has been proven if a person takes time each day to write out 20 things they are thankful for, it will have a profound effect on their mental stability and release anxiety and stress. A psychiatrist at the Huntsman Mental Health Institute, Christian Francis, said expressing gratitude can positively change your brain. One study said you want to lower your stress level? Be thankful. In a study on gratitude and appreciation, participants who felt grateful showed a reduction in the level of cortisol, the stress hormone. They had stronger cardiac functioning and were more resilient to emotional setbacks and negative experiences. Over the years, studies have established that, that giving thanks allows us to handle stress better. You want to de-stress your life? Start giving thanks. Spend time each day giving thanks. You want to improve your marriage? Find reasons to thank your spouse. Express that to him or her. Practice gratitude. Why do we struggle so much with this idea of thanksgiving? May I suggest that it is because when you and I give thanks, we are recognizing that the source of blessings is not found within ourselves. And so many times our pride wants to rule and we want to say, look at this of what I have done rather than look at what God has done. Gratitude and pride are opposites and cannot exist together. Gratitude says, it is not what I have done. It expresses humility. First Peter 5, 5 and 6 says, Likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. Yea, all of you be subject one to another and be clothed with humility. For God resisteth the proud and giveth grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. Thankfulness changes our focus from ourselves to God and to those God uses to bring things into our lives. Thankfulness changes our priorities. The Apostle Paul is simply saying that this mindset of thankfulness is right. It is fitting. It is proper. And as he begins his letter to the Philippian believers, he says, I thank God for you. If we are to have a transformed mind, thankfulness must be part of it. So let me close this evening with two very simple questions. I've already asked them, I'm just going to revisit them. In your prayer life, what are your set hours or set times of prayer? And do you allow anything 
to interfere with them? Or have you marked off, this is my time with God, nothing will come between it, between me and God. I've been challenged with that in my own life as we've studied over the last year or so in the, in the idea of prayer. It's so easy to allow the stresses and the pressures and, and just the, the, the general run of life. To, well, I, 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 I normally do it at this time, but, but something has come up and I can put it off and I can do it here later. How much of a priority is prayer to you? And then secondly, how do you approach God? Here, God, here's here Santa, here's my, give me list, give me this, give me that, fix this, do that. Or, God, I don't understand what you're doing, but I just want to come before you and thank you for all that you've done. I want to thank you for what you've brought into my life. I don't understand why this situation is here, but I know that you're trying to, to mold me and to make me and to transform me, to make me into what you want me to be. God, pl- thank you for this. Thank you for what you have allowed to come in my life how much is thankfulness a part of your prayer life and how much is it a part of your daily life the prayer of thanksgiving may we be known as a thankful people thank you so much for joining us today it is such a privilege to share god's word with you if god has spoken to your heart because of the message stop right now and respond whatever it is God is asking of you. Don't wait another minute. You can pray right where you're at and ask God for his help. If this message has helped you in any way, we would love to hear from you. Let us know if you have any questions or we can help you with your decision. Jesus asked his disciples, Who do ye say that I am? And he offers the same question to you today. What would your answer be?